morning. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3. This is Subject ACT, where we explore local current affairs from a community gaze. Today, political analysis of the federal election. I invited two of Australia's finest journalists onto the program to unpack some of the issues. Firstly, I spoke to Walkley award-winning journalist and political editor for Sky News Australia, David Spears. With a hung parliament in sight, how will Australia's parliament look when all votes are counted? And by the sound of it, that could take some time. Independent political parties, including micro-parties, seem to be contending for vital seats that could see Australians back to the sausage sizzle queue. As the Labor Party proclaimed the Medi-Scare campaign, the coalition assures Australia's sacrosanct healthcare system is safe. But perhaps the question at hand is, will Medicare be immune to privatisation? I also spoke to one of Australia's most respected and awarded political journalists, Michelle Grattan, for a synopsis of key issues following the federal election. Are the Greens a contending party or just gap filler for the major parties? Is Pauline Hanson merely rehashing an outdated ideology or are some Australians genuinely responding to the values imparted by One Nation? I also ask locals what they think of the uncertainties following the federal election. You're listening to Subject ACT on 2XXFM 98.3. Lovely to have your company this morning as we attempt to unpick some of the political issues of the federal election. Coming up next, Walkley Award-winning political journalist David Spears. I'm Becca Postorino. Good morning, you're listening to Subject ACT. This is Becca Postorino and this morning we're talking to David Spears. He's a Walkley Award-winning political journalist and political editor for Sky News Australia. Welcome to the program, Dave. Hi, Becca. Why are Australians so politically divided in the aftermath of the election? Well, I think everyone's still sweating on what the actual outcome will be. So we're in a sort of no-man's land, and it is very frustrating for not just a lot of Australians, but can I tell you a lot of politicians as well, because, well, firstly, they want to know, is the government, the coalition, going to form government? The likelihood is yes, uh, but they don't know yet whether it'll be a majority government or a minority government, and that could take still some days before we have an answer. So because we're in this no-man's land, I think there's you know, a lot of division about um, why we've ended up with this result. And I think in reality, it's a whole mixture of reasons. There's no one single reason Mm. why we've got this result. People are obviously disenchanted with the major parties. People are obviously uh, worried about Medicare. Uh, But, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of other issues in the mix, I'm sure, as well, that have made people vote the way they have. So what does a hung parliament mean for Australia if that is the outcome? Well, look, you look in Europe and a hung parliament or a a coalition government of various minor parties isn't anything unusual or anything to be scared of. They work Mm. quite fine uh, in other parts of the world. Here, we're not as used to it. Um, We had one in the 40s, then we had one two parliaments ago in 2010, and now we may well have one this time in 2016 as well. But, of course, memories are very fresh about the 2010 hung parliament, uh, which was, I think, very cleverly by Tony Abbott described as a chaotic hung parliament where Gillard had to rely on the Greens, Andrew Wilkie, Rob Oakeshott, Tony Windsor on the crossbench to get anything done. But gee, they did actually get quite a lot done. Mm. Now whether you agree with the the policies they put in place or not, they did get a lot through the parliament, including things like the price on carbon, um, the mining tax and so on. And a lot of these became big political problems down the track. But as a parliament, it actually got quite a bit done. 
On the back of that question, Bernard Keynes of Crikey suggests less than a third of voters want an outcome involving the Greens being in power. Do Australians want more independence in their political arena and what will this mean for the Senate? Look, I think, yes, Australians are attracted to uh, independence, minor parties, anyone but the major party. And we're seeing that again with this result. It's Look, when you look at it broadly, it's a fracturing of what we've had for decades in Australia, where there used to be a rule about 40% voted you know, Conservative, 40% voted Labor, and you'd have about 20% in the middle. Well, now that's completely gone. I think the major parties are lucky to rely now on even 25 or 30% of the electorate going their way. So there's a growing number, as you indicate, of people looking for other options, independents, minor parties, micro-parties as well. Now, it does make life harder for the major parties, and certainly when it comes to forming government, which is in the lower house, that can be very hard. And this time around, I don't think that anyone's going to want to do the deals that we saw in 2010, like a written agreement, we'll back you for three years. I don't think we're necessarily going to see that happen this time. So if the coalition, if Turnbull has to rely on independence, it would be more a, a week-by-week, month-by-month proposition. Mm. I don't think the likes of Bob Catter, for example, is going to ever do anything to put Labor in power. So that would give Turnbull some confidence. Mm. Um, but he's not going to have, I don't think, the sort of written assurances that Gillard had in 2010. When you look at the Senate, well, the Senate has long been controlled by various crossbenchers. So this is really nothing new. It'll be a new mix of crossbenchers, mm. and particularly with Pauline Hanson and Nick Xenophon having, well, a lot of control there in the Senate. That may make life a bit harder for the mm. government. But, look, governments for a long time now have had to deal with the Greens, with independents. There was Brian Harradine back when Howard was in power. So working with a, with a crossbench in the Senate is really nothing new. What do Australians predominantly want their political landscape to reflect if the coalition do not form majority government? I think, you know, anecdotally, a lot of people woke up on Sunday morning and thought, well, this isn't what I voted for. You know, this isn't the result I expected. Can we do it all again? (laughs) Well, that's not going to happen. Yes, technically, another election uh, is an option, but I think it's most unlikely. Look, if if you look at a whole as what Australia's voted for here, well, they clearly have voted to give some of these other voices more say, and that includes Pauline Hanson. She voted very well in uh, in Mm. Queensland. Uh, in fact, you look nationally, she's uh, outpolled the Xenophon party, the Nick yes. Xenophon team, in terms of the national vote. So her, her vote's been very strong, and you can speculate as to why and whether it's an you know, anti-Islam vote or whatever, but that's, that's what a lot of Australians have voted for. Mm. People have voted uh, significantly for Nick Xenophon again, and then a whole bunch of other uh, candidates like Darren Hinch in Victoria has done well. Mm. And again, I think that's you know maybe a bit of celebrity, but... In large part, I think it is because people want other voices in the parliament. They don't. They aren't happy with the major parties and the sort of way the way they've been playing politics over recent years. Speaking to that issue of Pauline Hanson getting quite a substantial vote, a lot of colleagues, journalists, and other commentators aren't even willing to discuss, let alone acknowledge her presence. Should we be listening? At least, if we're not in agreement with, should we be listening to what voters were responding to when they voted Pauline Hanson into the political realm once again? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a really important point because. You know, you look back 18 years ago when she was last in Parliament, I remember it well as a young reporter in my first job 
I was working in radio in Geelong, <laughs> and it was at the peak of the um, the hype around Pauline Hanson. She came down to Geelong for a rally down there, and there were such wild scenes for and against Pauline Hanson, mm-hmm. the likes of which I haven't seen uh, in my career since then. And so that's nearly two decades ago. Yes. Whether we see the same thing around this time, I'm not sure. But people who will remember that time will you know, have their own memories of that, I'm Indeed. sure, as well. There are there are big challenges here for the conservative side of politics, the, the the Liberal and National parties, but also the media in how they deal with Pauline Hanson this time around. Because any sort of aggression, any sort of talking down to, any sort of you know um, really directly challenging her yes. will often work to her advantage. It plays into exactly what she's trying to say, and that is that the system is against me. It's the insiders who are against the mainstream, and that, that plays really well for her. So I do think the coalition, the media, everyone needs to be very careful about how they approach her. I spoke to one senior conservative the other night about this, and his argument was, we just need to make her irrelevant. How you yes. do that is, is difficult, but making her irrelevant is at least one strategy that they're thinking about in terms of how they now approach uh, the re-emergence of Pauline Hanson. She's on the table now. How do we actually engage with that voice? Yeah, absolutely. And look, it, it's going to take some time to work this out. And look, it, it's, as you point out in your earlier question, it's not just Pauline Hanson and whatever other senators are there with the One Nation team now. Mm. But it's all those Australians who voted for her. Um, and, you know, we are talking about tens of thousands of Australians mm-hmm. uh, who want her there. It is significant. It is significant. And that can't be ignored. That can't be dismissed. It has to be dealt with respectfully by all sides. Climate change was not a priority for either major party this election campaign. Has climate change become politically passe, considering the recurrence of global natural disasters undeniably connected to this very issue? I think you're right. It didn't uh, feature as a big issue in the campaign at all. Uh, That surprised me a little, uh, given it has been such a dominant feature in uh, the last two or three elections prior to this one. I think we're actually inching slowly towards, this may sound surprising, but inching slowly towards more bipartisanship on the approach uh, to climate change. Um, When you look at the quite complex model that Labor put forward uh, in terms of different emissions trading schemes. And then you look at the government's direct action model, but also the safeguards mechanism it has in place. They're not, well, they are dissimilar, but you can see how they could become more similar over time. And I do think, I'd like to think we're going to get to a place where suddenly, or at some point, this Mm. does become a lot more bipartisan. They can adopt targets and then stick with, uh, you know, a roughly similar approach. A number of approaches, emissions trading is one of them, the renewable energy target is another, you know, a a lot of different ways of tackling it, but taking the political heat out of this issue I don't think would necessarily be such a bad thing. The Greens were quite satisfied. It certainly looked that way on the night of how things are progressing for them as a party. Would you say that the Greens are contenders in the future, if not obviously in the short term, but are the Greens uh, contenders as they perceive themselves to be? I don't think this has actually been a great result for the Greens this election. They appear to have uh, lost one of their Senate number in uh, South Australia. Uh, They came close but didn't pick up the seat of Batman, the lower house seat of Batman in Melbourne. So it's not the outcome, not the best outcome they would have been hoping for. Obviously, there's still a presence there in the Senate, particularly uh, with their large block of votes. But we've even seen the, um, the government, the coalition use on occasion with things like age pension reform and 
Senate voting reform. But, you know, obviously with Labor as well, they still remain a partner in the Senate, but a competitor when it Mm. comes to election time. And this is the ongoing difficulty for Labor, having to fight the Greens on the left uh, and the Coalition on the right. And you see that in seats like Batman, in Port Melbourne, um, Mm. you know, Melbourne ports, in a lot Mm. of other inner city seats as well. Do you think Labor will work with the Greens as an outcome from this election? Or do you think the tendency is to sort of state their their brand, I guess, as a party and make some clear direction within their own realm. Do you think they will work with the Greens? I think they will when it comes to, you know, where there are areas of policy similarity. So Mm. they'll both fight for things like Medicare and Gonski funding for schools. They'll both oppose some of the uh, company tax cuts the government wants to deliver and, and so on. But where they part ways on the policy front, is obviously asylum seeker policy, big Mm. differences there, uh, and from time to time when it comes to our foreign policy as well. But in a political sense, they are absolutely at war with each other, and this has been the case for some time, and I still don't think Labor has really grappled yet with how best to take on the Greens, or indeed uh, whether to reach out and embrace the Greens in a political sense. They're not at that point. They're still in the fight them, fight them, fight them phase. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to continue while they're battling over these lower house seats in particular. Coming to the question of polls being an indicator of what Australians are predominantly thinking in Mm. regards uh, to their political persuasions, are Australia's political polls independent enough to reflect the predominant views of Australians? And are they reliable? Well, I think the polls have actually proven to be uh, reliable at this election, and I'll openly admit that the polls have been pointing to 50-50 or 51-49 outcome for some time, and a lot of journalists and commentators, myself included, treated them with some scepticism because, you know, we were talking to, as journalists do, insiders in the government and Labor, and neither party was expecting things to be as close as uh, it's turned out to be. So... You know, a, a win for the polls, if you like, over the commentary on this outcome. Um, do the polls, though, need to be more, I guess, independent and reflective of, of what voters have, have uh, shown they want in the election? I think, yes, there's something to that. We generally poll the major parties, primarily. We don't do a terribly good job, I think, of polling the minor parties mm. and independents. That's harder to do uh, because it you know, needs to be done at a far more local level than mm. national level, uh, and that gets quite expensive in terms of polling. But I think there needs to be a better read on uh, you know, where voters are going in terms of uh, votes that aren't going to the major parties. Which way do you think politics will go if there is another election, in your view? Look, I do think another election's possible sometime in the next year or two. I, I think lasting a full three years is going to be difficult if we're in a hung mm-hmm. parliament. But look, if, if Turnbull manages to scrape together a majority here, we'll know in the next few days, I assume, he may be able to get through the next three years. But look, it really will depend on whether he can pull up his socks, do a mm-hmm. better job at governing, uh, whether the Liberal Party can settle down and get behind one leader, uh, because I do think the frustration is there on the part of voters about the chopping and changing in Prime Ministers. I don't think another change in leader is necessarily going to go down well with voters at all. Uh, but it also depends on Labor and Bill Short and how hard they go over the next uh, period as well in, in this parliament, whether they adopt the Tony Abbott approach to the last hung parliament and just keep the pressure on, keep the hammer on mm. every day, or whether they give you know the government any sort of breathing room. It's pretty hard to know at the moment, but there is still the prospect of, uh, of things settling down if the government gets a majority and actually 
some stability, but mm. I think it's, it's a big wish at the moment for Turnbull. Yes. And just finally, if there is a coalition or if the coalition does return to power, mm. will there be a contest for Bill Shorten's position and do you think that will maybe Anthony Albanese? Well, their rules, uh, which were set up by Kevin Rudd before he left, uh, automatically trigger a contest or an opening of the leadership if they lose an election. So they have to wait for the final seat count on this. But technically, it's uh, thrown open. Anyone who wants to put up their hand is entitled to do so. They're not challenging their leader. They're just doing their right mm-hmm. under the rules and putting their hand up. Will that happen, though? I doubt it now. But clearly there were many in the... Well, not many, but certainly some in the Labor Party plotting what would happen Mm. come election night because the morning after I was getting calls from very senior figures the left and the right of the party saying that they were very keen for Albanese to have a crack because while Shorten's done well in this election uh, there's a view that three years time and particularly if it's a hung parliament Albanese is going to be better placed to lead Mm. Labor through that since then though I think that talk has really settled down particularly Mm. as they've all digested the fact that well hang on we might be close to actually forming government ourselves. But I think they will, but they've got to settle down on this. And I do think Bill Shorten uh, will stay on as leader. Mm -hmm. I don't think in the end there is going to be a contest. And he keeps defying his critics, Bill Shorten, (laughs) keeps being written off, keeps rising to the challenge. So he's in a pretty good place right now, I think, to stay on as leader for the next three years. David Spears, thank you so much for your insights on this conversation. It's been a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. A pleasure. Thanks, Becca. That was political editor for Sky News Australia, David Spears, on the likelihood of a hung parliament in Australia following the federal election. Coming up next, renowned political journalist and academic Michelle Grattan offers her insights on the issues of this year's election. And locals share their thoughts. You're listening to Subject ACT on 2XXFM 98.3. I'm Becca Posterino. Welcome to the program, Michelle. Thanks very much. Nice to talk to you. In light of the federal election, which is still unclear, it seems neither party will retain the majority vote. Are we veering towards a hung parliament? I think it's... at this stage, quite unclear whether it'll be a hung parliament or whether the coalition will have the most slender of majorities, say 76 seats in the new parliament. Uh, The last few seats, uh, half a dozen of them or so, are in doubt and they do swing a bit from uh, day to day. The uh, seats are pretty dependent on postal votes and those do tend to favour the coalition. So the coalition insists it's still quietly confident of getting a majority, but uh, it could go either way. So what are the characteristics of a hung parliament from your experience? A hung parliament means that uh, the government uh, is obviously in a minority and it has to depend on some of the crossbenchers. Now, of course, we saw in the uh, Gillard hung parliament that there were formal agreements with uh, a number of crossbenchers that uh, did uh, cause some heartache later and uh, people like Andrew Wilkie, for example, who's still there, he had an agreement, it ended in tears, he says he'd never enter another such agreement. But at the very um, basic level, a government, a minority government has to secure agreement, even if not a formal agreement, to have its budget passed and uh, its confidence uh, motions, uh, Mm -hmm. if there are any, that the crossbencher supporting it would uh, go along with uh, that, would assure confidence. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So there are various levels of agreement that you can get in a hung parliament. Were Australians polarised this election or are Australians seeking more diversity in parliament? Certainly the result of independent uh, representatives or politicians would, would indicate to that. What, what's your views on that? The question is, I think, whether they're positively seeking more diversity or whether they're reacting against the major parties, Mm -hmm. whether they simply think their voices are not being adequately heard. So when minor players come up, uh, come to the fore, come to their attention, they say, oh, well, I will uh, go for them because uh, I'll register a protest vote. So last election, for example, we saw a large vote, a comparatively large vote for the Palmer United Party that uh, completely disappeared this time. And of course, we've got the Nick Xenophon team attracting a lot of votes, although it's a regionalised vote, it's concentrated uh, in South Australia, where uh, the state has gone through hard times, where the decline of manufacturing is, uh, of course, concerning mm. many people who lose jobs. Pauline Hanson is once again seated at the political table as a senator, winning possibly as many as four Senate seats. How should we as journalists, commentators or any Australian individual for that matter engage with the ideology of Pauline Hanson and with those Australians who voted One Nation into Parliament? The first thing is I think that uh, one of the uh, real negatives of the fact that Malcolm Turnbull decided to call a double dissolution, which of course means a smaller Senate quota to be elected, is that it has given uh, Pauline Hanson and her party more of a a say in federal parliament than an ordinary Senate election Mm -hmm. would have done. She may well have got a, a quota in an ordinary Senate election, but a couple of other One Nation candidates would not have got it and she would have had uh, a bit more of a struggle than she had on Saturday to get that quota. Now, on the question of uh, how journalists should engage, well, parliamentarians are parliamentarians and I think they've got to be uh, reported uh, in a a fair way and given their say and and treated... uh, equally as it were, or at least for for what they're worth in terms of the amount of power they have in the the parliament. But they they do all have to be given a voice. That doesn't mean that uh, people endorse that voice and and commentators no doubt will be quite critical of Pauline Hanson. But in terms of of reporting her, then she obviously is entitled to her say and Many voters have uh, indicated that. What do the polls reflect about the kind of person who voted for One Nation? What is important to them? I think that uh, they are people, uh, again, who are really um, protesting perhaps against the direction that uh, the economy and and the society has taken, uh, particularly people perhaps who have been hit by the end of the mining boom in Queensland, the transition to a more difficult economic situation in areas that are not as prosperous as uh, uh, many communities in in capital cities are. Uh, That sort of um, feeling, I think, of of being uh, at the margins of the economy or squeezed by the economy Mm. is is very um, fertile ground to... uh, 
get a, a one-nation vote out. Medicare seems to be of primary concern for many Australians, this election campaign. Will Medicare be threatened under a coalition government? Well, of course, there's been a lot of controversy about Labor running that very strong campaign about privatising Medicare, claims that that's what the coalition would do, and uh, the coalition has reacted very sharply, said it's an outrageous lie. I think while uh, what... Uh, uh, resonated in that campaign was perhaps the word privatisation, which mm. is a, a bit of a, a dirty word to uh, many voters, but also it, uh, privatisation, as defined by the ALP in what it was saying about Medicare, went much wider than any sort of narrow definition of a sell-off. Obviously, mm. the coalition's not going to sell off Medicare, but it, it stood for also... Uh, people paying more, a system where there was more user pays and the coalition had put in place measures um, in the 2014 budget. Of course, it had the co-payment, it retreated on that, but it, it's put in place other measures that would make for a more user pays system and Labor was able to exploit that. Medicare is a, a scheme that Australians do feel a lot of attachment for, ordinary Australians, mm. but over the years, the coalition has at various times expressed doubt about the scheme, and that goes back many years, and Labor was able to tap into that history as well, even though the present government gave assurances that Medicare wasn't under threat and that it did believe in it and so on. Independent parties are gaining political traction. Are more Australians interested in diversity in Parliament? And what will this mean for the political system if independent parties continue to gather momentum? There's no doubt that people vote more for uh, other parties than the major parties than they did a couple of generations ago when uh, basically those outside the major party system got just a very minimal level of votes. As I've said, I think this is a negative factor as much or even more than a positive factor from the voters' point of view. They're, they're reacting against rather than saying, well, we need a, a more diverse system, at least in the case of the sort of micro players. I think the Greens, for example, fit somewhere between the uh, micro players and the major parties. Mm -hmm. And they're, of course, in the tradition of the Democrats, which was mm -hmm. a centrist party now gone, but yes. uh, was existing there for, for quite a long time. And they, they were people who were probably voting in a positive way in the sense of uh, saying we want a party that is in the centre between the the major parties and simply the Greens voters, they're not looking for a centrist party in their case, they're a party more to the left, but their voters, I think, are making a positive decision rather than a protest decision. Yes. Uh, but... We are going to, I think, for a long time, perhaps indefinitely, have a system where people, for a variety of reasons, are not going to be voting for the major parties. Michelle Grattan, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and uh, we'd love to have you onto the program again. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Michelle. Can I just ask your views on the outcomes of the recent federal election? There was a big change to the Labour candidates, especially in the Senate. So there's around so far 11 or 12 seats. I was happy with the results that the Labour is the one who is leading 
I'm supporting Labour. It's unfortunate that we might be expecting hang uh, Parliament. The thing that upsets me is the whole process. We should, the electoral system should be something similar to the ACT election system so that there are no marginal seats. Uh, any uh, seat can elect another Labour or Liberal member. I think for a lot of young people it's a bit stressful to watch the election because I feel like whenever I look at who's likely to come into power or what's likely to happen, it never seems good. <laughs> I don't really have much any view of it at all. I'm still waiting for it to be sorted out. And how does that make you feel as a voter? A little bit disappointing that there wasn't one clear winner and because I don't believe anything should happen with independence, it should be either major party running. I think it's a mess and I think the country's in quite a bad state at the moment and if the coalition does get enough seats to govern I think it's unfortunately off to quite a, a precarious start and I think the media has also got a lot to answer for with beating up all this, um, you know, who's going to be the next leader and, you know, what have you done wrong and everything. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a mess. We heard from locals sharing their views on the events of this year's federal election. And before that, we heard from award-winning political journalist Michelle Grattan on the characteristics of a hung parliament and the role of journalists to give all politicians a voice in the media. Next week, I speak to Guardian Australia journalist, theatre maker and novelist Van Badham, who deconstructs the principles of the Labour Party and its apparent mantra to uphold social equity. Tomorrow, Doug Dobing presents Tuesday's edition of Subject ACT. Coming up next, compelling storytelling from community radio networks, all the best. You've been listening to Subject ACT. Join us each weekday, 8.30 till 9am, or listen live online at www.2xfm.org.au backslash listen. I'm Becca Posterino. Enjoy your day.